Apparently, I have to turn my mic on for it to work. It's good to be with you this morning. It's good, as, as always, to proclaim the, the truth that we, that we hear in the scriptures and to sing together the truth about our Jesus, about the, the work of his life, the impact of his death and, and the blood that he gave for us. I, I was just thinking as I, I often, maybe every week, I don't know, say it's good to be with you. Uh, and here's why. It's interesting. I have a unique perspective to this church, obviously. And I get to probably talk to more of you than any of you on a, on a Sunday morning. And so I love to hear how people are doing, and I, I hear all kinds of different responses. I mean, this is typically what we do, right? We shake hands and say, hey, how are you? Good morning. Great to see you. You hear, I'm good. Okay. A variety of answers that kind of all just mean, it's just what we say. Like, we don't actually listen. Just, I'm good. How are you? And then I sometimes like to dive a little bit deeper and find out what does okay mean, what does good mean, what does fine mean. And it's interesting. There's so many stories. Each of you that sit in this room come with your own unique backgrounds, your own unique brokenness, your own unique beauty made in the image of God and things to celebrate. And that's what makes up a church. As we talk about differences of, of all kinds of things in life, we come into this room, though, united based on the blood of Jesus. And there's something beautiful about that. And so when I say it's good to be with you, it's good to be with you with our different backgrounds, with our different stories, brokenness and celebrations, yet united because of this one name. There's a power in that, and it's good to be a part of that. Uh, with that said, a couple things for you to know. Next Sunday, so a week from today, we have a whole lot going on. It will actually be, uh, this is insane to think about, three years since uh, we did gatherings in the parking lot when this building was not ready for us to meet in. And it was getting cold and we had a little like playpen corral for like seven kids and 30-something adults and uh, no classrooms, and it was just a whole different thing than what we are experiencing today. And so it's amazing to see what God has done in three years. We're going to celebrate that as next year's the, the three-year the three birthday of the church. We're also going to be presenting to you for the first time uh, our new elders as our, our leadership structure transfers from our management team to a five plus me, I guess, local elders for the church, which is just a blessing from God. And I'm excited for you to, uh, to get to meet them. And so we're going to celebrate, hopefully well. We're going to remember what God has done and look forward to prayerfully what he will continue to do for us and through us uh, in this city and in this, this world. And so please make sure to join us next week. Uh, after both gatherings, we'll have food. We're going to have carne asada and a Mexican sort of feast because that's the kind of food I like. And uh, I get to make those decisions. That's a plus. We also will have a bouncy house, not because I like bouncy houses, but because my kids do, and a balloon artist, and cornhole, I do like that, competition's great, we'll talk about that later. We should probably have a tournament or something, now that I think about it. Fire pits, all kinds of things, just because we are called to celebrate, we're called to be together, and so we're going to try to do that well next Sunday after both gatherings, come, enjoy, stick around, uh, and it'll be good to, to be with you for that. Two weeks after that, on the 9th, we'll do what we call our welcome lunch. So in the studio, in the back room, uh, Michael Holliver will be catering, and he always does an incredible job. I come just for the food and, I guess, because I have a job to play. Um, it's just good to, to get to meet you if you're new, for you to have the opportunity to ask 
any questions about the church, to hear more about our vision, to get to know us. Or maybe you've been here for a little while, but you're not plugged in yet, and you want to. The Welcome Lunch is the place to do that February 9th, so a few Sundays from now. Lastly, I want to show you a, a quick video. I showed the numbers from Bot Beautifully. I don't remember them off the top of my head. I want to say just under $16,000 is what you spent or we raised for Bot Beautifully, which is going to translate to um, actual lives, multiple lives for the entire year changed uh, based on you providing dignified employment for these people. This is what you did at Christmas. And so I got a text from Emily Betzler, who leads Bot Beautifully, like two days after um, back in December, and one of their partners wanted to have a Christmas party but needed to raise money. And so Bot Beautifully and us pitched in just a little bit, and some other organizations and individuals and families did to help support this Christmas party for one of the organizations where every employee got a Bible, they got to sing together and celebrate the name of Jesus that we too were celebrating. And so I want to step down for just a quick second and show you this video because this is the type of thing that your generosity allows. That's just a, a small glimpse that that event that, that we partnered with Bought Beautifully for called Give With Impact was really about giving with impact and that happened. You think about $16,000, you think about this Christmas party across the globe in the name of Jesus, good things are happening and it's a blessing for us to get to be one small part of that but a significant part. Jesus has a role for us to play and it's a blessing to get to play that with you. I think I covered... Everything, And so we're going to dive into the scriptures. We'll be in Luke chapter 22 and chapter 24. This is a, a standalone teaching. Next week we'll start our new vision series. And the, the good and bad of a standalone series or sermon is that I get to and have to choose what we're going to be talking about. And there's been something on my heart for, for quite a while. We do it every week and it's communion. Um, but sometimes I, I wonder if we really understand what communion is about. What is the role that it actually plays? Why do we do this? Is it just some old ritual? Does it actually matter? Is it just symbolism? Is there some other weird mystical thing going on? Like, what is communion about? And so we're going to kind of take a journey through the scriptures this morning and dive into that. I think this matters a lot. Actually, I think the whole foundation of the church, our relationship with Christ and our impact for each other, this city and this world is actually dependent on and founded on this sacrament and this thing that we do every week. And so we're going to spend time journeying through the scriptures and talking about it this morning. We'll start in Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. The, the, the stage, if you will, for where we find ourselves, the context this morning is in Jerusalem preparing for Passover. 
And so you have to uh, imagine an energy like the biggest event you've ever been to. There's a buzz in the air, a spirit, an excitement. Uh, this is a vacation of sorts for some as they, they, they make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate for this feast and festival. You know those moments where you can just feel energy in the air. That's what it's like at this time, except as thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people pour into the city for this annual holiday, something even more significant than normal is happening. They've heard about this Jesus, about miracles, about his teaching. They're wondering, and actually they're starting to believe that he might be the Messiah, that he might be the one to save them, to free them, to redeem them from the oppression of Rome because the Jewish people are under Roman rule at this time. And so just days before this, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and as he comes into Jerusalem, there's all this energy and excitement. There's crowds that come around, and they start to yell and to cheer, and they proclaim Jesus as king. And we think to ourselves, great, he is king, that's good. But you have to understand, in this moment, in their moment, in their city, in their world at that point, only Caesar is king. And so for the crowds to proclaim Jesus is king, for all to hear, means that very soon Rome is going to hear that they are not bowing down to Caesar, but there's this other Jesus guy. And when they hear that, Rome will bring the hammer down on all the Jewish people. That's what they do. They give you freedom unless you revolt. And so there's this, this mixture of anxiety, excitement, peace, encouragement. As Jesus comes in, they're proclaiming him as king. Some are like, this is it. We've been waiting our whole lives. Our father and his father and his father told us that one would come and we think Jesus is it. Others are panicking going, I don't know. But if they don't shut up, we're all going to be dead soon. That's the moment. They have good reason to believe too. Some of them were, were there on the road. That was dirty and dusty and there's animals all around and, and people selling trades and goods like a, a marketplace. And there's an even bigger crowd on this dirty, dusty road on this one day they're remembering because Jesus is walking by. And the crowds want to hear his teaching and, and maybe just maybe see and witness a miracle. And it's loud. It's really loud because there's so many people and animals and, and travelers on this road. But then there's this distinct voice that cries out. It's the voice of a blind man. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He cries out and he yells it loud because there's a crowd. But he heard Jesus was coming by and he believed enough to yell out. He doesn't care what he looks like. He yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people say, shut up. It's not about you. And he doesn't care because he knows Jesus is worth it. And he cries out one more time, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everything stops. The dust settles. The crowd stops speaking because Jesus stops moving because of one voice. And he turns around. He does a 180. He reverses his course. He finds this voice in this man with his blind eyes. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? The man says, I want to see. And we read that Jesus has compassion on the man. And so he restores his sight. And the crowds believe. See, this crowd in Jerusalem at the time of Passover, they've seen things. They've heard of Jesus and his friend Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for days. So much so, he was so dead that he smelled like death when Jesus commanded that Lazarus rise from the dead and walk out. And Lazarus did. 
Some of them had seen when a paralyzed man was dropped through the the ceiling of a building Jesus was in. He could not walk, and Jesus said, get up and walk, and he did. They'd heard his teaching about this God who loves. They'd seen the miracles, and so they have this anticipation that he is indeed the one. And so as he comes in to Jerusalem at Passover, this annual feast, the most important one, where they remember that their God redeemed them out of slavery, under oppression from Egypt, the the world's power at that day, they think Jesus will redeem them in this moment. The revolution will begin. He will make himself king, not from Egypt's oppression this time, but from Rome's. There's a lot going on in this moment as they prepare for this Passover feast. It's where we pick up in verse 14. When the hour came for the Passover feast, he reclined, Jesus, at the table and the apostles with him. That word reclined is important because in the Egyptian story, as we think about the Passover, they all would recline. This is an intentional action, ritual, and posture during Passover because free people reclined while they ate in Egypt. And the servants, the slaves, which the Jews were, stood In case you've ever wondered, why in the world are they reclining? That seems like a weird way to eat. It's symbolism. Free people recline. And so in this moment, not only are they remembering the freedom, the reclining that happened when Yahweh God redeemed them from Egypt, but they're foreshadowing, they're remembering as Jesus reclines, and they recline to eat this meal that Jesus will redeem again. They're expecting the, the normal thing that happens year after year. You might have uh, rituals for Thanksgiving or maybe for Christmas. Maybe there's certain words that are spoken or a passage that is read or you open gifts the night before or the morning. There's certain things, certain ways you go about it. They had very specific ones for this holiday. And with Jesus being the leader of this group of men, he was supposed to lead with the normal words, the normal actions, the normal routines. And then this is what happens. Verse 15. Then he said to his disciples, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's already talked to them that he's going to die, he's going to suffer, but they've not listened. You know how we're really good at hearing what we want to hear? They want him to be king. They don't want to hear about his suffering. They go, that's not an important detail. Verse 16, Jesus says, For I tell you, I will not eat it again, this meal, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Meaning, until redemption and freedom happens once again for us. Verse 17, then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now that sounds really weird. You're going to remember a while before Jesus at one point, when he has a ton of followers, tells people, whoever doesn't eat my flesh and drink my blood will not be with me. And people scatter because it makes no sense. He says something similar. The disciples are going, this is not going according to plan, Jesus. You're, you're kind of losing your mind a little bit. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he's about to get weirder, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant The whole Old Testament, about this big, their entire lives were based on this old covenant. And Jesus is saying, I am proclaiming something new. It's just not going to be what you think. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. 
In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it would be the blood of an animal. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give up my blood. It is shed for you. Now listen to this. In the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant, there are some very specific rules and regulations and laws. The, the Israelite people could have nothing to do with consuming blood. In fact, as they ate and prepared meals, they had to make sure that all of the blood was gone. And so when Jesus says, he looks as a religious leader, they're hoping a political, maybe even a war figure type leader, says, drink my blood. He is throwing out everything in the book, the literal book. And they're going, what is happening? Because, hey, Jesus, we gave our lives to you for the last few years. Like, we left everything and we're following you. Are you crazy? Like, what is happening in this moment? Have you ever wondered that when, when we take communion? We do that here every week. Normally we walk to stations and I say some, some funny words. I say, when you walk up, whether individually or with your family or your community, you can take the, the bread, which is these crackers, right? And you can dip it into the cup, the juice or the wine. And we take, and Jesus says in remembrance of me, do you ever just like, maybe you just do it. Maybe you have a lot of history and background, but do you ever just go like, why do we do that? Have you ever actually asked that question and wondered about it and pondered it? Why do we do that? What does it mean? There's different words for communion, different titles for it. The, the first that came about was probably just the bread breaking. This was a, what was established with the, the first church, the early church. Eventually other, other names would be given as well for this meal, for communion. One would be called the sharing, which comes from the, uh, the word koinonia, which has to do with fellowship. It means to be united with, to be connected to, the sharing. And so from that, we have what we refer to this meal as, as communion. We are united with Christ and with the body. That's where this, this term communion comes from. Maybe you've heard of the term for this meal called the Eucharist which comes from a, a different word that means to give thanks. And so in this case, with, with the people that call it the Eucharist, communion is primarily about giving thanks for what has been done. Mass also, for some, is what this meal is about. And, and mass comes from three Latin words, a combination of three Latin words that means to be sent out. So as you take the bread and the cup after you are sent out to be on mission for God. There's different names for this meal, this sacrament. There's also different ideas of what it actually means. We could spend a long time talking about them. So instead, I'm going to give you just the range. On one hand, it's thought by some or believed and practiced that the bread and the cup turn into the actual physical body and real blood of Jesus when it's consumed. That's one side. On the other side, it's considered that this is just mere symbolism it's a memorial of what has happened. And there's all kinds of ideas in between. And as we continue diving back into the shoes of the disciples to, to see and experience the first Lord's Supper, the first communion, the first Eucharist, we're going to dive in and, and see what, what's actually going on here. What do we believe is going on and why? Because the disciples didn't understand this at first either. We're going to turn a couple pages to Luke chapter 24. In between this first Passover meal where Jesus says these words, eat my, my flesh and drink my blood in remembrance of me. In Luke chapter 24, a lot happens. He goes through a garden to pray. The disciples fall asleep because they just ate a ton of food and they just want to go to sleep. 
Jesus says, can't you just stay up a little longer? They can't. He gets arrested, beaten, and crucified. Like, that happened quick. There was all this excitement and energy. He was supposed to be the leader, the redeemer, the revolutionary, and now he is dead. N.T. Wright puts it this way from the disciples, the apostles' perspective. He says, then the Friday, hiding like a rat in a hole. Then the news, the worst, the end, the shame. All your fears come true. All your doubts confirmed. And in the middle of it all, a meal that should have been a Passover, but hadn't been. With words that should have pointed to God's great new redemption, but obviously didn't. Said by the one who should have been Israel's Messiah, but who now obviously wasn't. Their hope is now dead because Jesus is dead. All this excitement, it is now gone in a few minutes to hours to days. We pick up now in chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came, the women, to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared for the dead. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, notice they were perplexed. They didn't understand. They didn't believe Jesus was alive. They were confused. They were perplexed. Suddenly, two men stood by them in dazzling clothes, so the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. That might be the most important question in all of the scriptures. Why are you looking for the living Christ among the dead? So often we do not operate as if our Jesus, our Christ, our Savior is alive and well and walking in our midst. But he is. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has been resurrected. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still here? In Galilee saying, the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. Be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Maybe they had heard them before but not listened because they wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. This is what we do. Verse 9, returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. Now culturally, the witness, the word of a woman doesn't mean anything. So watch what happens. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. So angels have spoke to the women. The women now tell the disciples, and they go, you guys are crazy. He's dead. But these words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went home amazed. Some other translations say wondering. Not amazed as in he believes. He's going, what happened? Amazed at what happened. Wondering. He doesn't believe either yet. Verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus. They're leaving from Passover back home, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. That sounds like nothing, but they're not taking cars or riding bikes. This is a journey. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. You know when you get ready for a long trip? a road trip or, or flying or whatever it is, and you kind of have to muster up your energy because you know it's going to be a long day. That's the kind of day that this is going to be. 
Except, you know how like when you, you're about to go on a vacation, you're excited, so the travel maybe goes a little bit quicker on the way there because you're looking forward to something, then the vacation's done, and on the way home, you're like, oh man, we gotta get back to reality. It's a little harder. That's what they're dealing with, except the one who they put the, their hope in for the rest of their lives is now dead. And so they're embarking on this walking journey of seven miles, and they're discussing what happened. I imagine them walking for three, five, seven minutes in just silence. And there's a lot of other people on this road talking and chattering about what had happened. But these disciples, they're just silent. There's no words. Maybe after 30, 45 minutes, step after step, their feet start to hurt, and they're not even close to home. One of them goes, what, what do you think he meant when he said this? What happened? What went wrong? Didn't he say he was going to be the Messiah? Did we hear wrong? And they don't know, so they're silent. And they keep walking and wondering, and they're depressed. So depressed, I picture them almost like a person that's on the highway driving on the left lane, super slow, and they're getting passed like crazy on the right lane. And you wonder, what are, what, what's this person doing? They're, they're living in their own little time zone here because you're supposed to be in the left lane if you go fast. But guess what? These disciples, they're clogging up the road, and they don't care because they're depressed. Nothing matters. The world is as good as over. So silence arguments, discussion, continue. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, this is not a happy conversation, their world is crushed. Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. It's an interesting point. It's not really the point of this passage that's our story so often. Jesus himself is walking with you. But we don't know it. Then Jesus asked them, what is this dispute, as if he doesn't know, that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. You know when you're having an important conversation with somebody and then someone just interrupts? Has that ever happened? They're walking, they're having this conversation, and then this crazy guy decides to just barge in on the conversation and goes, hey, what are you two arguing about? And they kind of just go, have you not heard? Look at, listen to, listen to the, the sarcasm. Verse 18, imagine this, he's going to say this to Jesus himself who's walking with them. He says this, the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? He stops. He makes eye contact with Jesus and says, are you the only one? Of all the people, you don't know the story. Have you not heard about this? And he's saying this to Jesus himself. There's going to be a theme here. That's also us. I often talk about the why question. I go, God, why? What are you doing? Where are you? And he goes, oh, child of mine, you are so clueless. You just don't know, but my plan is perfect, and my plan is good, and this is best and what is needed and good for you. It's so easy to mock Cleopas, but we are him. Jesus responds, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning, who else? Jesus, the Nazarene. Now, this is fascinating. They have to inform this clueless traveler on what has been going on, right? They have to say, who was this Jesus? Because they're trying to figure it out. That's what they're arguing and disputing about. They have to come up with an answer for this clueless guy. The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, 
powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. That's fascinating. He's not the Messiah. He's not the future king. He's not the Lord. He's just a prophet. He mattered. He taught us some good things. But he's gone. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one. Another interesting point. What tense is this in? Past tense. Not we hope he is the one as Jesus is walking alongside of them. Jesus is with them and while Jesus is with them, they have no hope. We were hoping. Hope is dead. Hope is dead as Jesus is walking alongside of them. That's actually really encouraging. It's maybe where you're at this morning, hope is dead. But Jesus is with you, and Jesus is not dead, and that means hope is not dead. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see him. Notice nothing in their posture, their heart, their belief changes. Angels have come and spoken. Jesus himself is walking with them. But nothing has changed. This is fascinating. What we start to see who the main character is in the story. We like to make it about us. But this is 100% about Jesus. Verse 25. He said to them, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts. All the prophets have spoken. This is, this is interesting. Sometimes I wonder why God, why Jesus takes us on the journeys he does. This goes back to the why God questions, the what are you doing. Like, couldn't you just teach me in an easier way? Kent Hughes kind of explains this to us in his commentary on Luke. He says this, Cleopas had let it all out. His confusion, his depression, his disillusionment, his shaking faith, his anger. This also is encouraging. So here's a man who's confused, depressed, disillusioned, whose faith is shook. He's angry, probably at God. And who does God himself go to be with? That person. And did Jesus reject him? Of course not. Jesus coaxed the couple to reveal their true thoughts, which were by and large their doubts. And when they did so, he answered, our Lord honors spiritual honesty. Didn't the Messiah, Jesus says, have to suffer, they still don't know it's Jesus, these things, and enter into his glory. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Which means from the beginning to the end, he said, this is all about me. They came near the village where they were going. They've walked seven miles now. They're tired and exhausted. And he gave the impression that he was going further. This is a really, really, really unique detail. Why would that matter? He gave them the impression he was going farther. It's almost like there's a choice here. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. There's this fork in the road moment where Jesus pretends he's not going to burden them with himself. 
So he's like, I'm going to keep going. And they say, no, 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 you're not. Come stay with us. We want to hear more from you. You're to be the guest of honor. We want to spend time with you. Come be our guest. And so they're practicing hospitality for Jesus. They invite him into their home. They would have then, as was customary, made a meal, given him the best room, provided for him. This was their intent. They're listening. They're welcoming. They're hospitable for Jesus in this moment, though they don't even know it's Jesus. It begs an interesting question for us. Are you and I hospitable for Jesus? They didn't invite him into their home and say, hey, you get the corner. Go check out the closet over there. There's some sheets. I think they're clean, and I think we have some leftovers sitting over there. Like, that's not what they did. They welcomed Jesus into their home. They gave him the best seat. We'll read this in a second. They make him the guest of honor. They listen to him. He's not in a corner. This is intentional. What does that look like in your life? Are you hospitable for Jesus? You urge him and say, no, I need you to come stay with me today. Or do you let him keep walking? That's about the only role they're going to play in this story, but it's an important one. They are hospitable with Jesus. So he went in to stay with them. Now listen to the similarity in the language to the first passage we read. It was as he did what? Reclined, which symbolizes what? Freedom. At the table with them, he took the bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Sounds an awful lot like a few nights before. Sounds an awful lot like they would remember that this just happened when they were confused and this whole body thing and blood thing made no sense. And now his body's gone and his blood is not with him as well. It was as he reclined at the table with them. Now this is also unique. He is their guest and their home where they're being hospitable. This doesn't make sense. But now he has taken the head seat at the table and he is the one, the head of the household, the leader should be the one to break the bread, to bless it, and to give it. But in their home, he now is the giver. They are hospitable and then once that happens, enough has happened that he switches roles and he says, once again, this is my story and you get to be a part of it, which is the best thing you. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed, and broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. He's gone again. Are they going to be depressed? Are they going to be broken, have no purpose, not know what to do? No. Something's changed, and this is where communion's going to come into play. So they said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us? While he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us, that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. You don't do that at Palestine at night, walking seven miles on a dangerous road where robbers are just waiting. Unless the God of the universe just rose from the dead and you now need to go tell his disciples so you have no fear. They go back the seven miles. They find the 11 and those with them gathered together. And they said, the 11, the Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Two different things were going on at once. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Okay, we're going to fast forward a time period now. They now know, they believe Jesus is alive. He has risen from the dead. Look at verse 50. 
Then Jesus, this is way later, leads them out as far as Bethany. They're no longer in Jerusalem. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them. He left them. He left them. This is going to be important. He left them and was carried up into heaven away. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. And they were continually in the temple complex, which they used to do, praising God. That's a big shift from a couple days before. The first time Jesus left them and died, they were not worshiping. They were not praising. They were disillusioned, angry, confused, and mad. But what happened? Jesus still left. Jesus is gone. He was taken away. He's not with them, sort of. But they're rejoicing and filled with joy. Why? Because this meal that we celebrate changes everything. It's interesting. Peter, who wondered at what had happened, not too long after this, is going to stand up before thousands of people and preach a sermon explaining all of this to them. Something significant had changed after just days before he had ran, run for his life afraid. He's no longer afraid. Which leads us back to this meal that we call communion. Communion impacts us really in three ways is how I want to discuss it this morning as we close our time. In the past, for the present, and for the future. As we think about communion, we're going to take it differently than we normally do this morning. It certainly is a memorial. It's a dynamic symbolism of the past. As we take the bread and normally dip it into the cup, we are remembering that Jesus gave up his body and his blood for us as a sacrifice. He took our place. Uh, Nate read earlier, he was the propitiation for our sins. He took our spot on the cross. So that our sins could be forgiven and the debt is wiped away. That happened. And when we take the bread and the cup, we remember his body and his blood. There's a memorial. And that matters. It's significant. We just sang about it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus could do that. It's interesting, though, as they were walking on the road, as Peter saw the tomb, as the women did, they were still afraid. The blood had been shed. The body was broken. He had been killed. He was dead. But they didn't have hope just from his death. His death paid the price. It was the propitiation for our sins. But it is his life and his resurrection that actually gives us hope for the present, for today, and for the future. The death and the resurrection have to be considered together. Because here's what is happening when Jesus says this crazy thing. Here's my body. Eat it in remembrance of me. And here is my blood. Drink it. Here's some inadequate but maybe hopefully helpful ways to think about it. In some ways, communion is like an engagement. A man buys a ring and it should cost a fair amount of money and he gives it as a gift, a symbol to his fiancée that they will be married. And that changes the moment now. For one, he spent a lot of money. They start thinking about living arrangements and financial planning and wedding planning, and it changes the moment now. Now it's about that one man and that one woman joining as one. No other man or woman is now allowed to be a part of this relationship. That symbol changes the moment now. Or it's like when I get done with my work day and I start driving home and I call my wife and I say, hey, I'm on my way home. And through the phone, my voice is present in my house, and I'm literally physically moving in that direction in a car. I'm not fully there, though. 
but it changes things. We start thinking about dinner plans. The kids might change their attitude for better or worse, depending on the day. It changes the now. I think about my daughter. There's the saying we use with family, right? Like it's, it's in the blood. She has my blood. It's funny if you watch my oldest watch TV. You ever watch people watch TV? It's actually really entertaining. She'll sit there and she'll be watching a show and her face will be like just deadpan for a while. Then she'll go. Like she does some crazy things. I'm like, this girl's weird. And Chelsea's like, that's exactly what you do. <laughs> oh, okay. She looks, she's a spitting image of my wife, my oldest. But she thinks a lot like me. She does a lot of things like me. It's kind of scary. She has my blood. Or take my, my dad, for example. I have his blood. I think the way my dad thinks. We are almost always on the same page. Unless we're moving furniture, in that case, he's always on the wrong page every time. Or my mom, she has, I have her blood. In all kinds of different ways and characteristics, she is an incredibly passionate and competitive person. I am an incredibly passionate and competitive person. And that was passed down through bloodlines. Like, these are just a few of the things, but I have their blood. My daughter has my blood. I think like them. I act like them. Not holistically, but that's not a choice. That's in my blood. When Jesus said this thing, take, take this bread, it is my flesh, and drink this cup, it is my blood. Here's what he's saying. Paul would say it this way. You have been adopted as sons. He doesn't say daughters. He says sons. This is why. Because you've been given the blood of Jesus. Not just to pay the price of your sins and wash it away, but rather the blood that did not stay dead, but the blood that rose with him. Because he still lives. And so as we take communion, we recognize that the blood of the Christ, who didn't just exist to die, but existed to live the perfect human life and did, is in you. So guess what? I'm a hopeless as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a pastor, as anything I'm supposed to do in life. I am going to royally mess it up. But the blood of the divine is in me. And so my hope is not in self. My hope is that I have his blood. I have his nature. And slowly this blood transfusion happens and Jesus transforms us out of the image of the sinful man and as a new creation to be like him until we are perfect like him when he returns. And so there's actually total freedom. Here's this ma major switch that happens. They say with hospitality, no, we urge you. Cleopas and probably his wife come to our home tonight and stay they're hospitable they listen, they invite then the switch happens Jesus sits at the head of the table and he says this is my house now let me give to you what you need, here is my body that I gave up for you and here is my blood, it wasn't just given to wipe away your sins it did that but it was given to you for life as well this blood changes everything. And so the application that we sometimes have when we come in on a Sunday morning has to always be about this. Like, let's just be honest for a minute. Anything I say and tell you to go do, you're going to fail at. I will fail at. Your marriages will fail. Your parenting will fail because of sin. Everything will fail. This is dark and gloomy. Except for this. 
Not only have you been forgiven, but you have been empowered through the Holy Spirit with the blood and life of Christ. And so as we take communion, we are what? United with Jesus through his blood, and that changes who you are now. That's significant. That's why we do this every week. It's all about his grace that he broke, blessed, and gave. The only thing we have to do is be hospitable to it. I want to go ahead and invite Nate back up now to, to sing, and, and we can join him one song before we take communion together. I think this song embodies what communion is about. Before he does that, I want to read this last quote, though, from, from N.T. Wright. He says this, when I was engaged in regular pastoral ministry, kind of now, stop there, take out regular pastoral ministry, that's not significant or important or special. Insert whatever it is you do, your vocation, stay-at-home mom to accountant, lawyer, attorney, barista, whatever it is you do in life, okay? I found that the only way I could cope with the daily demands, we all have daily demands, he's going to call it this, was the daily Eucharist. There I could lay all my puzzles and problems, we all have those, symbolically before God and find them not removed, but reshaped in the pattern of Jesus because the pattern of Jesus lives in you. That's a different kind of hope because it's not in you. It's not, hey, Jesus saved you, paid the price with the blood, and now good luck, figure it all out. Try not to sin again so he has to die again. Some people believe that. He doesn't have to die again. Because now his blood is in you, transforming you into the human he created you to be, saved you to be, and will sustain you to be. Let's worship now, and we're going to take communion together in just a minute. Days gone by, Spirit, help my soul to rise. Try my best, but still I fail. And even then, you're with me there. You remind me I'm a child of God. Regardless of the things I've done, all my hope is found in perfect love. So your mercy triumphs over judgments. Wider than her. Your heart, oh 
Well, they say that it's impossible to ever save a sinner's soul. But my God says to the prodigal, my beloved one, you're welcome home. Judgment, a love wider than horizon. 
chair, which is different than how we normally go about it. We normally walk to different stations for communion. And, and the reason behind that is that I think our walking actually symbolizes the very, 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 very small role we play. It symbolizes the hospitality piece, that we are walking to Jesus, that we are receiving his gift. Communion elements are provided for you. They're just given. That's symbolic. You didn't bring them of Jesus freely giving to us. But there is this hospitality piece. But today, we're going to take this all together as one body under the, the head of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so I want to read out of Jesus' words in Luke 22 that he gave to his disciples. That didn't make sense to them then. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we want to take this together now. And hopefully it makes some more sense. Jesus said this. He took the bread and gave thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the tab off and let's consume the body together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. Go ahead and drink the cup. As you take communion this morning, know this. Peter proclaimed to thousands of people in multiple languages, and they all heard it in their own language. After this, he, he proclaimed to them as he was preaching one day that death could not keep its hold on Jesus. It had a hold on Jesus. He was dead, but it could not keep his hold because this blood is too powerful, because this body is too powerful, and that same body and that same blood is in you through the sacrifice and the resurrection of the Son. And so the love of the divine empowers you as you are the church. We don't leave this building. You leave as the church and have hope. Be encouraged that through the power of the Spirit, the blood and body of Jesus leads you. You're not dependent on yourself, but we take communion every week to know that he walks alongside of you. That's good news. Normally we have a, a different way of going about response time. We're not going to do that this morning because I wanted to emphasize uh, communion. If uh, you are a, a frequent member with us or participant in the body of Restoration Church. As you leave today, there's two boxes for giving in the back of the room or instructions um, if you'd like to give for how to give online. 
Giving is something that unites our heart with Jesus. And actually, I think there's maybe no better way to give than at the end of our gathering because it symbolizes that as we leave as the church into the everyday stuff of our lives, Jesus is not supposed to only lead here, our hearts, but he's supposed to lead in everything. And often our money's the strongest tie to our heart. And so as we leave, we give to represent that our heart belongs in the hands of the Savior. So if you'd like to give at the end of our gathering, feel free to do so. We're going to sing one last song. I, uh, I told Nate this week that I was inspired to do only 25 minutes. That did not happen. I apologize. Next week I'm going to try. We're going to sing one more song because I, I think it's good and it matters and there's power in our voices. If you have kids and you feel like you need to go get them, feel free to do so. Be blessed and know that the Christ is with you. But we want to gather and, and sing one last song together. Let's go ahead and do that now.